The model, the anomalous adventurer, the only Bond who was a bloke. Our own George Lazenby burst from obscurity into the throes of espionage, and the world was never the same. Number of Bond films to his name? Just one. But that was all he needed to take the franchise from down under to over the top. I'm American film journalist Rupert Carmichael. Join me and our most beloved Bond, George Lazenby, for a tantalizing introspection about where Bond began and where he's going next. In conjunction with the PBS and the BBC, this is Building a Better Bond. Listeners, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again on what will prove to be, perhaps, the greatest episode of Building a Better Bond ever to air. We are in for a treat today. A treat beyond treats. The biggest treat since the Treaty of Versailles, perhaps. We are talking with George Lazenby, as we usually do, but instead of our usual topics, today's topic is the talk about himself. The man, the myth, the legend in the flesh, George Lazenby talks George Lazenby in a podcast about George Lazenby. George Lazenby, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. And why don't you let me and all of our adoring public know how you feel about today's episode. Rupert, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a little bit bittersweet. Can you be bittersweet? I know something can be bittersweet. Can you be bittersweet as a person? Because that's how I would describe myself. As you said, I think that this is going to be the best episode of our series. But what does that mean for the following five episodes? You know, we've reached the climax a little too early, perhaps. Mm, A poignant question and poignantly said uh, with a touch of poetry, perhaps. More than a touch, I think. We are indeed reaching the zenith of the performances that we'll be discussing. But perhaps that means there's the least room for insight as... There will be very little critiquing going on. Mm. Indeed, listeners, perceive this episode as the rubric with which to grade the rest of our iterations. But I needn't belabor the preamble. George, today we talk about your portrayal in Her Majesty's Secret Service, beloved by millions, adored by critics and the masses alike. The definitive Bond film... And the indisputable best. Our listeners, although they'll be disappointed that the following subsequent five episodes aren't as good as this one, hopefully the caliber of this episode will be enough to take them through the rest. Especially, you know, next week we're going to do Roger Moore, and that one's going to be a fucking slog if there ever was one. But I think that this one will be enough to be the North Star, if you will, of this podcast. The guiding light, as you said, the rubric. Uh, We can't really critique Something that is the best, you know, that's not really a critique, but I think an analysis of why it was the best is going to be at the crux of this show. I could not agree more, George. And it should be said that part of the reason that your portrayal of James Bond was so formidable and foundational was that you came from, to say humble roots might not be accurate, but from a unique point of origin. You were not a famed actor. 
you did not pick up the role after many other on-screen successes. That's true. I was just a kid from Australia and I ended up being a mechanic and a car salesman. And just through being great at that and through people really admiring what I did, I became a model. And through there, I, I got the part as James Bond. And that was my first acting role ever. I'd actually never spoken on camera at all. Amazing. Fascinating. Tantalizing and scintillating. These can all also describe your initial moments into the world of show biz. You, as you mentioned, George, began as a model. Commercial work belying the future artistic breakthroughs that you would come to make. Now, we could have an entire show, and believe me, you have already pitched it to our producers many times about your modeling career. However, we should begin at the beginning of Bond. How you got the role. It is, some have said, the greatest caper ever told. And I have to agree. With that, we have to, of course, investigate the tuxedo. It plays a foundational role in the most foundational Bond film, and you, George, shall share, if you would be so kind, the story of how it all happened. Well, as I said, you know, I, I came from a very different place than as an actor ready to be James Bond, but I think that my versatility... And my many, many, many talents set me up to become James Bond. I, I actually, in my younger years, I'd moved to London and I bolted a pair of bootstraps to my floor so that every morning I'd come over and I'd pull myself up with them. And in addition to amazing core strength, I got the ability to really become the best at whatever I wanted to be. Not to interject, but listeners, if you're familiar with George Lazenby's unbeatable Iron Abs Bootstrap Workout. Yes, this is the same. Available for purchase on bbc.com. Thanks for doing my job for me, George. Now, please continue. You know, I don't want to bore our listeners. Uh, I, I guess they can't really be bored if they're listening about me, but, you know, it's a long story. But uh, I think if one thing led to another, and through my modeling career, people said, you know, you're really good at standing there and not saying anything. What if you started talking and what if you started moving around? And I said, you know what, I'll, I'll give it a try. And word on the street was that Sean Connery was no longer going to be James Bond. And so my agent said, you should audition and I'm sure that you'll get the part. She, her name, of course, Loretta De Lorraine, would later go on to feature heavily as a TV psychic. One of the world's most trusted and often used because she alone possessed the foresight to see what would become so true later on, that this unlikely pairing of role and man would be so successful. George, I am salivating, because I have heard this story told many times, both by you and by others, but you took up this audition, despite the fact that you were not technically able to apply. That's true, and for our listeners... Our producers are working frantically on the electronics behind the scene because your salivating is sort of messing with the audio quality. So if anyone hears a little clicking or something, that's that's why. I have uh, admittedly soaked through both the protective casing on the microphone and the buffer that hangs in front of the microphone. The pop filter for those in the know. And I'm beginning to think that the peripheral spray is beginning to wet my earphones as well so but you know what was also wedded rupert was the appetite from the audience for a new james bond mm. there was rumors that you know the the producers albert broccoli and harry zaltzman 
wanted just another Sean Connery doppelganger, uh, but I wanted to bring something else to the role. Uh, and so what I did was I figured out where Sean Connery's tailor was. And when he wasn't looking, I stole one of Sean Connery's suits because I thought, well, if they just want Sean Connery, I'm going to wear his suit. And he here's where the rumors start. People think that I got the part because I was wearing Sean Connery's suit and I looked just like him. That's not the case. I walked in and I ripped off the suit and I burned it to the ground. I lit it aflame and I said, you don't want Sean Connery, you want George Lazenby. Remarkable, especially because, correct me if I'm wrong, George, you were not entirely certain whom the producers were that you were meeting with. So you had ripped off and burned the suit to the ground as the secretary brought you into the waiting area. Yes, there was there was a bunch of uh, actors and stuff waiting to audition there. And that was actually the third different agency I'd walked into that day. It wasn't the original Sean Connery suit because I've already, I'd already burned it, but I'd gotten the wrong address. Mm-hmm. So I had to go there and then I, I, I flipped up the numbers a little bit. It was, uh, you know, like 1983 was the address and I went to 38. So I burned another suit. I'd go back to the tailor, steal another suit. And then finally I got to the waiting area, accidentally burned that one. And then I had to get, I said, okay, I'll be right back. And I got another suit. And then finally I was able to walk into the the producer's office and burn up the suit and make that impression. Now that commitment to making a statement is, I have to imagine, one of the reasons that you were considered despite your lack of acting chops. Indeed, the producers went out on a limb to extend this iconic role to someone with so little experience. However, once they saw you in the suit, they could never look away again. And they really couldn't because my idea for the suit was, and you know this route, but I I don't have to tell you, but it's iconic, you know, that bright white, colorful rhinestone suit that we all associate with uh, the George Lazenby James Bond. Of course, at the time, naysayers called it gaudy, but in time, it would come to be retired as a sports franchise will retire a jersey from a star player so was the rhinestone tuxedo retired from future bond films thought to be never replicable in the sheer grandeur of lazenby's portrayal no other bond could ever wear it again Uh, let me tell you the story about this suit my idea was to take the wiseness and the experience of fat elvis known for his rhinestone suit, and pair it with the sex appeal and the almost naivete of of skinny Elvis and merge them into one amazing tuxedo. People might be thinking, you know, well, I never never saw that suit. I I just saw, you know, a normal tuxedo. What happened was the producers assured me that I could wear my suit, but people might be a little taken aback. You know, it, it was very different. And they hired a body double. So we filmed the entire James Bond film. And then a body double wearing a normal suit was superimposed over the top of me. That's correct. Not only was the public not ready for such a glitzy, glamorous piece of material, but also it was so resplendent that the cameras of the age had difficulty picking it up with any sort of accuracy. You blinded, temporarily, thankfully, several boom operators and filmers. There's actually a deleted scene where we kind of explain that the, the camera rays shooting the film reflect the suit and turn it into a normal layperson watching the film as a normal suit. So it's, it's almost a piece of technology in and of itself. A marvel that becomes a meta-marvel 
when you consider the technology built into the suit, which is what we should talk about next, George. Your suit was interesting. Even the stunt suit that had to be implemented as a result because it was inlaid with one of the most novel, and some might say understated, Bond techs of all time. Mm, I think I know what you're talking about. Are you talking about the pocket gloves? Pocket gloves. Now, you young listeners out there might think pocket gloves, well, those have been around since who knows when. Since my grand's time, perhaps. You take your jean shorts and joggers with pocket gloves for granted. But rest assured, it was none other than on Her Majesty's Secret Service that founded such a practical fashion statement. I don't even know if we really have to explain these to people, as you said, but really you put your hands in your pockets and the pockets are are sort of like uh, inside out gloves. And when you take them out, I I had sticky gloves that I could use to climb up ski poles and the like. Yes, in the film you ascend a ski pole. I was talking about real life, but yes, also in the film. In the film, yes, you ascend a ski pole uh, as one of your many performed by self stunts. But today you can get pocket gloves in all sorts of styles. They don't have to be adhesive meant for cat-like capers. They can be instead silk or leather or even denim for the sporty individuals out there. I think that's that's kind of where our trajectory of the technology came, Rupert. We wanted something that was innovative at the time but was believable. And I think that's what kind of freaked people out. You know, this we were going to the moon, it was 1969, and we were at war with the Russians, and we wanted this film to have very deliberate and very interesting technology, and that made people nervous. Mm. But now you, you take your pocket gloves for granted these days. Absolutely. George, are you familiar with the concept of the uncanny valley? Um, you know, I'm going to say yes. Yes, I am. That's not really how that question should be answered. At the same time, to those listeners who don't know, it's when an unnatural phenomenon looks too close to reality, but not quite close enough. Your eyes can't believe it's real, yet your mind suggests that it might be. This is the one criticism that might be leveled against on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Of course, it has nothing to do with your portrayal, George. It has everything to do with the selection of technology. A little too close to reality. It made viewers think about the dangers of the Cold War and the big bad world that lived across the pond. I think the most keen example of this would be the radioactive lint. I use this in the film and it was just you know a a little piece of pocket lint but it was it turned out to be radioactive and this freaked the shit out of people sears and roebuck stock plummeted people thought that they were in cahoots with the russians they were gathering all our lint to spy on us it's just an example of how james bond could have very detrimental or very positive economic externalities and of course who can forget the following year life imitates art double agent boris smekov attacks a local laundromat replacing lint drawers with radioactive caches. Tens are hospitalized, and the world is never the same. Some blame on Her Majesty's Secret Service for letting such technology slip. George, where do you fall on the matter? It's exactly what you said. It's art imitating life, or is it life imitating art? I think that you kind of need that in cinema. And on Her Majesty's Secret Service was successful in that because I was very believable and I was the best James Bond, but we also had very believable technology. I have notebooks actually filled with 
different technology ideas that our writers came up with that we just thought, well, whoa, they, that was way too real. You know, there was this one guy, he thought of this portable music player. You could have millions of songs in your pocket, okay? And we, we thought, okay, that's just way too real. So this guy, his name was, um, I'm looking at the notebook now, his name was Steve Jobs. I don't think he really ever amounted to anything. I think his ideas were just too off the wall. And I, I kind of feel guilty for that. I'm wondering, George, if we're thinking of the same Steve Jobs. Yes, we are. But I have no doubt that you have some means of detecting that with certainty. But at the same time, perhaps we shouldn't dwell on the careers of others when we have such a short amount of time to speak about one of the all-time great careers. Of course, that is your own and of course, we will talk about what makes it so distinct, your voice. Something we are graced with each and every episode here on Building a Better Bond, and one that listeners have come to love, I'm sure. We'll talk more about that after the break. Don't go anywhere. Some people say they divide us. I humbly say they bring us together. Fences. It's a new 400-part audio documentary series from the PBS and the BBC that aims to explore the sordid past and the undeniably promising future of the walls we use to crisscross property lines and sometimes our countries. Where did the noble fence have its humble beginnings? Where will it take us next? Will it be remembered as a tool for separation or one for unity? Chain link, white picket, slat and bamboo, all fences have a purpose. But how do we fit into it? Hosts Denzel Washington and Viola Davis are your guides. The gate's unlocked. All you have to do is come on in. Stream every episode now on bbc.com forward slash fences. Hey there, listeners. George here with a great offer for you with the help of PBS and the BBC. Everybody loves coffee table books, and I've been trying to get into the market for decades. Finally, I've compiled all the behind-the-scenes photos from On Her Majesty's Secret Service into one memorable photo journey between two awkwardly large hardcovers. Full disclosure, I moved quite a bit and my basement flooded a few years back so I could only salvage nine pictures. But who's got time to flip through a book these days anyway? I'm actually doing you a favor here if you think about it. It's a quick jaunt down memory lane for me and a brief peek behind the curtain of the greatest Bond film ever made for you. Pick up a copy of Lesson Bond, a photo essay wherever books are sold. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any specific places, but hopefully you can come up with one. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, listeners. We're here now to talk about talking about how George Lazenby talks. It's the talk of the town now, and it was back in 1969. George, it's no mystery. Nor is it a secret, nor is it a service, technically. I digress. It is magisterial, though. Your Australian accent has caused an international love affair with the continent down under. But, ironically, perhaps, you had to break this accent to portray Ian Fleming's vision of the island man, the Great Brit. Talk about how you did it. Well, just as an overarching statement, I think there's three types of Australian actors. There's the Americans Australian, you know, that's probably Hugh Jackman. There's the Australians Australian, and that's, of course, Crocodile Dundee. Paul Hogan, yes, of course. And then there's everybody's Australian, and that's yours truly, George Lazenby. And I think the difference is that one of them can be appreciated by Americans, one of them can be appreciated by Australians, and one of them can be appreciated by everyone. And I did that by being the most 
approachable, the best actor anyone from Australia could ever be. And unfortunately, that had to stem from changing my accent because, you know, I, I agree with the fact that James Bond had to be British. We had a lot of talks about that behind the scenes, you know, what if he's Australian for this outing, but they felt strongly, and then I ended up agreeing with them that he should be British. And so I worked with vocal coaches to perfect that British accent. And so I, I want to do a little exercise with you here, Rupert, if you don't mind. Oh, I would be honored. So we're going to take, let's say, an Australian and a British, very quintessential phrase. And for you, I'm going to throw in an American phrase as well. Uh, and that way, we can see how each one expertly changes. And we're each going to say this phrase. So for Australia, we're going to do throw another shrimp on the barbie. Okay. And for the British phrase, let's do keep calm and carry on. And, and what's a, a quintessential American phrase that you'd like to say, Rupert? A uh, fine question. Why don't we go with one straight from the Constitution? I'm a Yankee doodle dandy. Perfect. Let's start out with that one. And we will each say it in an American accent. You can go first. And I should say it in just my own voice, or should I intimate a... Let, let's go for... I mean, I'm, I'm an expert linguist, so let's just go for a, a quintessential, you know, Midwestern accent, just to cover all bases. All right, I'll, I'll do my best. Ahi there, I'm a Yankee doodle dandy. Okay, you know, I'll give you a, a B- minus for that one. Um, now, now listen to this one. Hi there, I'm a Yankee doodle dandy. Chilling. I, I have chills. I have active chills happening right now. For you listeners, somebody from Joliet, Illinois, didn't just walk in their recording studio. That was me. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Uh, the, the Australian phrase. Throw another shrimp on the barbie. Do you want to start, Rupert? Let me start by apologizing both to you, George, and to any Australian listeners whom I might offend with this portrayal. But in the spirit of learning, I will attempt it. Oi, good day! Throw another shrimp on the barbie, will ye? Okay, Rupert, my, my fists are up uh, out of a, a knee-jerk reaction, we'll call it. I'm not going to hit you, but that instilled some rage in me. I apologize. I'll show you how pro does it. Could I throw another shrimp on the barbie? See that very calm, almost borderline staccato of the Australian accent? It's just perfect. It's perfect. But again, I'm, an, I'm a native speaker, so... You can see how hard this is already. Of course, the range you're displaying is remarkable. I quiver in anticipation for the British exaltation. Okay, I'll start out this one so you can have a benchmark. Let's see, should we do a London accent? What What do you think of when you think of British? Because I can do all of them. Let's do South Welsh. Ah, South give Welsh, you something, good idea. Yes, okay. give you a little something to chew on, George. Okay, keep calm and carry on. You see how that's different from the Australian and the American? I was transported in a moment into a flock of hill sheep grazing in the rain. That's exactly what I'm channeling. You know, the the expert vocal teachers, they teach you to picture something in the scenery of where you want to take your accent. And that's exactly what I was picturing. So that's great that you were picturing that as well. Uh, now you try it. You make for a very tough act to follow, George, but I will do my best. Give it the old college try. Oi, governor! Why don't you keep calm and carry on then? I like the little affectations you added to it, but uh, I don't think it really added anything. You can't really mask the, the terribleness of your accent with just throwing in stereotypical jargon. Tough criticism, but fair, George. We can see now illustrated in audio for all to hear just how difficult it is to achieve what some actors have deemed unachievable. You see Australians portraying Americans in cinema, whether it's 
Emily D. Ravine in Lost, for instance, or many others where their accents are ever-present in their voices. But that was not the case in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. You blended into the British lexicon so easily mm -hmm. that indeed you changed the way that British was taught in vocal studios around the world. And in schools, in English classes. In Britain, they actually watch now on Her Majesty's Secret Service to really get diction and, and syntax and all that good stuff properly. Remarkable. Now, George, were there any words, phrases, or otherwise that gave you particular trouble? It has been documented just how effortlessly you overcame your accent with the help of vocal coaches, but did you experience any interesting wrinkles in the process? You know, I never like to put all my cards out on the table. I don't like to, to seem vulnerable, especially because we're, we're talking about the best Bond ever here. But if you could believe it, James Bond, the name was actually the hardest for me to say. That is, uh, it's inspiring and it's also frightening. It makes me feel things I wasn't prepared to feel, but at the same time, it just feels right. You think of movies like The King's Speech or something, uh, and I think my challenge was even greater than that. Now, tell me, George, what about the name James Bond made it so difficult to say in an English accent? It wasn't really the, the amount of difficulty it was to say. It was just that everyone was used to Sean Connery saying that. So I think it was almost psychological. If I'm reading these show notes correctly, it says here that you often, out of habit, would say, instead of Bond, James Bond, you'd say Lazenby, George Lazenby. Yes, I tried Lazenby, George Lazenby. I tried multiple different names. You know, I, I said Freddie Buchanan, you know, and Percival Quincy. And then they'd, they'd say cut every time and they'd say, why are you saying different names? And I said, well, you know, I'm a spy. Maybe I'm undercover. And they said, no, that's not that's not how this works. And I, I really tried to kind of get around saying the name James Bond. And I thought it would work for the character. But eventually I just had to do it. And I threw up multiple takes. I'm not ashamed to say it. I think most famously, my favorite of these takes was uh, when you inverted the name and said James, Bond James, and coquettishly froze in place waiting for everyone to accept it as reality. One time I actually said Denob Semaj, which is James Bond backwards, just because I was so nervous. We have here a long list of all the names that you attempted to say instead of James Bond. I realize this might be hard for you, but listeners, you must realize that this does not denote a chink in the armor. Instead, it shows where the armor has grown thickest. I'll start by saying one here that jumps off the page to me. It says... McAllister, Noodles McAllister. Yes, that's when I walked into uh, a Chinese restaurant in the film, and I thought that it would be good if I was undercover, you know, as, as one of the waiters or something, and someone asked me my name. I said, Noodles McAllister. I thought that was a little too on the nose, so they cut it, but uh, I thought that would have been great. But, you know, I do want to point out, Rupert, that all this naming aside, it started to spread the rumor that I was, and I don't want to say this, that I was difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's just not true. There's there's little things like this in the in Hollywood in in the business of show that sort of spiral out of control. There's, for instance, rumors that I was demanding to be driven just two feet from one set to another, and and that's just not true. Uh, I actually had a, a very stringent car dealership sponsor with Chevrolet, and I had to be in a car. 
or a certain amount of hours a day. And so I couldn't leave the car. And so this this turned into this rumor that I was requesting being driven around mere inches of feet. But that wasn't the case. No, it was demanded of you. So many things in Hollywood get twisted around. The story changes. Rumors become truth. And the truth is hidden away forever. That is one of the many things we are hoping to do with Building a Better Bond. Shed some light on the misinformation of the past one rumor swirls to mind more than others. That is, of course, George Lazenby's penchant for drink. With that, we move on to talk about Teeny, the alcohol and cocktail drinking in your one Bond film. It has a storied and shaken past. Well, that's that's very true, Rupert. Being the, the second James Bond, I, I had some big shoes to fill, and that's not because Sean Connery wore a big-sized shoe. I'm speaking metaphorically. As point of order, if I'm not mistaken, Sean Connery has very small feet, actually. Oh, the dainty. The teeny. <laughs> I actually have bigger feet than him, but I still had to metaphorically fill these shoes, and one of the parts of those shoes, I, I would say, was the martini. I mean, he was renowned for drinking his martinis. Shaken, not stirred in that glass, and it was hard. And I don't know if you know this, Rupert, I only have half a kidney. It seems almost impossible for such a perfect man to have such a bodily imperfection. But indeed, you have only a portion of many of the organs that other people have full sets of. Yes, well, that the kidney thing stemmed from a childhood illness, and they had to remove the kidneys. The other organs, I had them surgically removed because... My half a kidney grew to the size of two kidneys because I'm just a stronger, more evolved person. And I thought, well, you know, if I had maybe just half a lung, maybe just half a heart, it would become better and stronger than other people. So I just had all those surgically removed. I don't need them. This tenacity, this stick to unwaveringly led to your success as history's greatest secret agent. But tell us about how it affected your drinking on set. Because I had, you know, sort of a tough act to follow, even though when the record books document this, I was the better James Bond, I thought that I had to really prove myself. So I thought that my martinis should be far larger than Sean's, and that I thought they should be made five times as strong as his as well. So I had these giant martini glasses that are eight feet tall, you know, they're made with who knows how much alcohol, and I'm drinking them take by take, and I was fucking blitzed half the time. Indeed, to create a cup large enough, eight feet, I believe, was a little bit of dramatic hyperbole on your end, you had to contact a, at the time, little-known drink manufacturing company, an upstart, out of Toledo, Ohio. Their name was 7-Eleven. At the time, they had been a holdover company making plasticware for the troops in the Second Great World War, now middling along, designing various vessel architecture. Eon Productions contacted them with a strange request. We need a martini glass the size of 28 martini glasses. And the big gulp was born. So in every take, you know, I'm, I'm chugging these giant martinis, you know. And this is where these rumors start. People say that I was drunk all the time. But th they were really requiring me to do it. I mean, I was insisting upon it, but then they were requiring me to do it. And I would just disappear on a bender for half the time and wind up God knows where. Rupert, do you remember the, the Beatles playing on the roof of Abbey Road Studio? Uh, yes, of course. Very famous moment in music history. So one day I wasn't on set. They didn't know where I was. And the reason that people heard them playing 
up there was because Billy Preston wasn't on the keyboard. I was on the keyboard and I have no idea how to play. And I was just making all sorts of a racket. And people thought, you know, what the hell's going on up there? And then they realize, oh, it's the Beatles and George Lazenby. Beatles featuring George Lazenby, sometimes called the fifth Beatle. All the time called the fifth Beatle. George Lazenby would later go on to feature in one of Beatles' later studio albums, playing the maracas, the one instrument in which, if I'm not mistaken, you are classically trained. Yes, as all Australians are. All young Australians attend compulsory maracanist training, and it showed. You were the featured maracas player on Let It Be, for instance, but we digress. Well, I, I want to say that that's just a testament to my accent and my ability to blend seamlessly into British culture. The testament grows with every line spoken. But we speak about the rumor that grew that George Lazenby was an unemployable drunk and that production on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service was nearing disaster levels. Yeah, and that's simply not true. Let me, let me bring up something else from my past here, Rupert, just to paint a, a broader picture of the beautiful scenery that is George Lazenby. So another part of my childhood is that I didn't just have one dad. My, my dad left when I was very young, mm. but he did this purposefully. He thought that if I had multiple dads growing up, I'd be a more well-rounded person. So for the first three years of my life, you know, he was around, he left, but then I had a, a plumber dad. And then I had a movie star dad. And then I had a mechanic dad. So being able to learn all these trades and being able to look up to all these men really made me the well-rounded person that I am. And one of those dads was a raging alcoholic. And so that's how I learned to drink these giant martinis. Yes, the giant martini. Shaken with one of those flab busters that were famous in the early 60s. Behind the bar, you might still find one or two in the right English tavern. George Lazenby, product of so many influences, but the number one influence, his own. In time, Hollywood learned the truth about your drinking, in quotes, problem, and how, in reality, it was just further commitment to the role of a lifetime. A lot of people think that because I haven't been in movie roles, it's attributed to this, but it's because I've just turned down so many movie roles. Because why would you do another one after James Bond? You already were the best. Why would you follow that up? And I've been offered multiple, multiple hundreds of movie roles. For instance, you know, I was offered the part of Ace Ventura. Everybody's favorite pet detective would look a lot different if history was just a little bit askew. So I read the script for that. Um, I got to the part where it says, I guess it's only the first page where it describes him and it says he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt. And I said, you know, I can't do that. James Bond wouldn't wear a Hawaiian shirt. And they said, well, you'd be Ace Ventura in this film, George. And I said, well, what if... James Bond was undercover. And they said, well, that would be a different movie. And I said, well, now we're talking. Now, fortunately or otherwise, this meeting of the minds never came to be. And you turned down the role of Ace Ventura. When Jim Carrey eventually stepped into those shoes, George, what were some other near misses in this middle period where you had not yet completely committed to retiring from on-screen acting? Well, that's a good question. You know, it's not just comedic roles I've been offered. I Because I was... Uh, so good at demonstrating my breadth and my range as an actor. I was offered um, James Conn's role in the movie Misery, that Stephen King film. And uh, I, I got to the part where Kathy Bates breaks his legs. And I said, oh, that would never happen to James Bond. And they said, well, you'd be a, an author who's captured in this film. And I said, well, what if, and hear me out on this, what if James Bond was undercover? And they said, well, that would be a different movie. And I said, well, now we're getting somewhere. Mm. My point is, it's not for lack of trying. It's just the right role hasn't come around. Exactly. And as you so 
poignantly put to us at the beginning of this episode, how do we go on once we know perfection has been achieved? It is difficult, but it is necessary. And much like this episode today, we wonder aloud and must only beseech the wilds of imagination to ask, where do we go from here? Where does a career go after it reaches its zenith? And where does a franchise go after it has already been graced with the best portrayal it could possibly have? Unfortunately, right into the fucking toilet. You speak, of course, of Roger Moore's portrayal. There will be more to say on that next week. But I wish, if you could, George, to do the undoable and sum up your performance as James Bond with some last words. I'd be happy to. Uh, We've talked a lot about rumors in this episode, and I think the biggest rumor is that I sold my soul to the devil to act so well, similar to Robert Johnson. But it's actually, in my youth, I worked at a shoe store called Shoehorns, and the logo was, it was a devil wearing loafers. So I think that's where that rumor started. And then, you know, I worked at a hat shop called Brimstones, and the logo was a devil in a fedora. So you see, Rupert, how, how these things get conflated. But I think it's also just attributed to my immense talent. You know, I, I wasn't supposed to live past the age of 12 because I only had half a kidney. And I'm not spiritual or religious, but I think things do happen for a reason. And my reason for living and being here and potentially even selling my soul to the devil. I won't confirm or deny that. It wasn't to be a mechanic, and it wasn't to be a car salesman or a model. It was to be James Bond. And that's what defines me and makes me who I am. And whether it was one film or seven, because I could have done seven, and I decided not to, but I could have, but I didn't. It doesn't matter, because my one film is better than anyone else's seven combined. Humanity truly is the benefactor from such a cosmic course of events. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed a brief glimpse at the perfection that is portrayal of a lifetime and the role for franchise. Join us next week in starkest contrast as we investigate where it all went wrong, the dark years, and proof, finally, of the phrase that less is more. In conjunction with the PBS and the BBC, I'm Rupert Carmichael. I'm George Lazenby. Good night. (laughs) 